Father, I thank you for a day to set aside and remember the importance of our mothers and in the family that you created, Father, when you established it in Adam and woman. You gave us a caretaker, a person who knew us better than anyone else, one who could never deny us, for we came from her body. Father, the relationship we have with our mother is unlike any other. And Father, I thank you this morning that we have so many in this church who have had the blessing of motherhood or by their care and concern for others have become like a mother for so many. We thank you for that blessing, for the heart of this church and the heart of every body, Father, is seen in the hearts of mothers for children and husbands for wives and children for their mothers. Father, we thank you for the relationships that we have here, for the many women who serve here and do so much to honor you by their care. And Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for a church that's devoted to it, that never puts it aside and can find nothing better. For truth, Father, is yours alone. And we thank you for this time and study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought Mother's Day did give us at least a moment of opportunity to honor and remember the importance of motherhood. But then it dawned on me that not everybody in here is a mother. Obviously, men can't be a mother. But even among many of the women, there are those who are yet to be mothers or haven't been mothers. So I thought it was valuable just to go down a quick checklist of the kinds of experiences that mothers have so that we can all identify a little with mothers. And being the expert in motherhood that I am, I felt that maybe I should be the one to present that. And the easiest way to show what mothers go through is to show you how the progression of motherhood goes. Because things are different between the first baby and the third, fourth, fifth baby, right? For example, when the mother is getting ready for that first baby and she's thinking about what to wear, you, you've probably noticed that when it's the first baby, the mother starts to wear those, those maternity clothes right after they get the news that they're pregnant from that first moment. They just can't wait. By the time they're in their second pregnancy, though, they wear the regular clothes for as long as they possibly can. And by the third, fourth, fifth baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. I, t- I-, I told you I'm an expert. Or right before the birth, when the mother's preparing for that big moment, the first baby, it's all about breathing, right? They practice that over and over again. By the time the second baby comes along, they don't bother practicing it at all because they remember from the last time that breathing thing, it don't work at all. And by the time that third baby comes along, they're asking for the epidural in about the eighth month. So, and then lastly, when you're at home during the day with your baby, first time out, you just spend all day looking at him, gazing at him in the, in the crib, right? Second baby... You uh, spend a part of your day watching because you've got to keep an eye on them, but uh, you're really just trying to make sure that the older child isn't poking or squeezing or hitting the other one. By the time third baby comes along, moms spend a little part of every day just hiding from all the children. <laughs> so moms, I hope today you get a chance to hide a little from your children or enjoy them in some other way. What have we been studying in chapter 25 now into chapter 26? Well, we've been watching several generations of Abraham growing up under God's hand. Abraham, of course, was the first. Now that he's gone and the blessings and the promises of God have moved down the line. We know the son that received them after Abraham was Isaac because he was the chosen child. Last week, Moses then skipped ahead into a conversation about the next generation, that being the twin boys of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And 
it seems as though we're already looking at how God is working in that generation. But wait a minute, we've hardly heard anything at all about Isaac. It's almost as if he's a footnote to the story. We jump over him a little, at least it seemed that way. But he's alive. He's the holder of the promises. He's the patriarch. So it's almost as if Moses' narrative has gone a little faster than we would have expected, given how little we've really heard about Isaac. And that is, in fact, the case. And in chapter 26, Moses pauses, goes back into Isaac's life, and presents us with a few key moments out of his life as the patriarch. And truly, this chapter gives us just about all we know concerning Isaac himself. This is the only chapter of Genesis entirely devoted to Isaac's life. He appears elsewhere, of course, but always in the context as a sub-player to someone else's story. He was either a, a sub-player to Abraham or he'll be a backdrop to Jacob and Esau. But here's his one moment in the sun, the one chapter in which we learn about him. Frankly, there's not much here, especially when you compare it to Abraham and to later Jacob. Abraham gets about 13 chapters devoted to him. Jacob gets about as many. And Isaac gets one, one chapter. Isaac's life didn't appear to have the same kind of up and down behavior that typified Abraham and will typify Jacob. But nonetheless, he had a few interesting moments. And so Moses highlights those here. We have to see this chapter in a certain light because Isaac lived longer than either Abraham or Jacob. So he lived the longest and has the least in text of Scripture concerning his life. So that forces us to look at this chapter not as a condensed version of his life, but really just as highlights, key moments contained in this one chapter. So that means these must be the important moments. There must be something about what goes on in this chapter that's worth noting. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to find there are three lessons or three points being made about Isaac. We'll look at two today. And we'll look at the last next week. Let's begin in chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. If we wanted to give this chapter, chapter 26, a title, there's one that comes to mind for me, Back to the Future. This entire chapter is going to sound awfully familiar to you because we're going to learn that Isaac's story follows a very familiar storyline. Specifically, he does a lot of what Dad did. And yet there are differences. For example, he says here he lived in the land during a time A famine, and Moses clarifies this is not the same famine that affected his father in that previous story. This is a new one, a a different one, one that's come decades later. Now, during that earlier famine, when we studied the story, Abraham left the land of Canaan and went down into Egypt trying to find somewhere that had food, somewhere that was fertile. 
And as we studied back then, this was not something God wanted Abraham to do. He was doing this on his own, as his own solution to the problem. Here again, now in this story, God brings a famine to the land, and now it's upon the time when Isaac is wandering through the land. And this time Isaac begins to move. But interestingly, Isaac, we're told, is moving to Gerar. And the last home that we heard he had was Bier Lahoy Roy, which is south of Gerar. So he's moving northwest in response to this famine. Unlike his father, who moved southward toward the Negev, only to cross the border later. Now, Gerar is the land of Abimelech, king of the people who later become the Philistines. Isaac here has done something different than his father. He's moved looking for fertile territory to graze his flocks and so that he has some potential to find food as well. But he's not moving southward. This already begins to show us there's a difference between how he thinks and how his father has thought, at least in some sense. And the famine here gives the Lord an occasion to appear to Isaac for the very first time. This is something notable. Up to this moment, only Abraham has received visions from the Lord. Only Abraham has heard from God. We know Rebekah has heard from God, but we've never seen Isaac. All that Isaac knew concerning this God that Abraham talked about, the Lord, the one who called him out of Ur, none of that has been a first-hand testimony. All of it has simply come as a result of Dad's testimony. Now, we know that Isaac has already demonstrated faith in God, so we're not doubting his faith, but we're saying up until this moment, he's never received that personal first-hand assurance from God concerning all the promises that are in that covenant that Dad has talked about. Now he receives that in first person. God repeats all the major elements of the promise that we've already seen Abraham receive. And he admonishes Isaac in the process to stay put, stay here in the land, don't go down to Egypt. And Isaac will receive all of these lands. Now the the receiving of all these lands, it refers to the grant that God gave to Abraham back in chapter 15. It goes literally from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the river Euphrates in Iraq. And if you go back and study, it also has a northern and southern border. The northern border is Damascus of Syria. The southern border is the Brook of Egypt, the historic border between Egypt and Israel. Israel's never had that, never. Never in its history has it ever occupied that span of land, and yet that's the span of land God is promising. Further proof that the promises that are spoken here have yet to be fulfilled. They are a future fulfillment. And that's a part of what comes in the kingdom that is promised after Christ's second coming. Descendants will be innumerable, we're told also. They also will inherit the land, not just Isaac himself. And through his descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, we noted back in chapter 12 that the promises God made to Abraham were unconditional. Do you remember that? Abraham never did anything to receive those promises. One day, he's a pagan worshiper in Ur, going about his business. Next day, God appears and says, guess what? You now receive my promises. On with you now. Go to the West. Abraham had no chance to say no. He had no chance to to earn them. There was no earning required. God just allotted this to him on the basis of grace and mercy. God's promises weren't dependent. So why does God say here in verse 5, that this covenant is now coming to Isaac. It's now being transferred. It was inherited, in other words, from Abraham to Isaac because Abraham obeyed God. 
It seems to put a conditional emphasis on these promises again, doesn't it? It seems to suggest that if Abraham had not obeyed God, the whole thing would have fallen apart. But that doesn't make sense, given what we saw earlier. Well, the English text here doesn't really capture the meaning properly when it uses the word obey. The word obey in Hebrew is actually the word shama. Shama is a very common word in Hebrew. It shows up throughout the scripture. It is literally the word for hearing, to hear. Shama means to hear. Now, it can be used in the sense of obey, as in I heard and I heeded. But in light of how the rest of the verse plays out, I think that's overreaching. I think the text should just be translated literally here. Abraham heard God, and then, as the rest of the verse says, he kept, or guarded is the word in Hebrew, guarded God's commandments and laws and statutes. This is a perfect description of faith in action. This is the letter of James lived out in the life of Abraham. He heard God, and the hearing here implies a saving kind of understanding. He came to know God. He came to hear God's voice and believe in it. And then evermore, he did his best to guard or keep God's commandments. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 28, speaking to Jesus, the men say, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. But having believed, then the scripture's commandment is to live out what you believe, to obey. Now, we know Abraham was not a perfect man, right? We've seen that showing up over and over in the story. That precludes us from interpreting this verse to say he was sinless. No one would stand up and say Abraham was sinless, would we? So what does it mean that he kept God's commandments? We know he didn't actually keep them perfectly. He heard and he obeyed. What God is saying to Isaac is, you're receiving this because I granted it to your father and he became a good witness. It will move to you and you will do the same. Abraham didn't earn the blessings of the covenant. He simply heard God's word and believed it. The belief produced a change in his behavior and that change became a witness. And that's the normal expected transformation that scripture calls all believers to pursue. Our faith changes us spiritually and then that change is expected to produce an outward change in behavior. That's God's first message to Isaac. Other than enumerating the covenant, his first statement to him is, live like your dad. When John wrote on this topic in his first letter, 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner he walked. And then John adds this interesting footnote. He says, beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. But an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word which you have heard. John warns us that someone who claims to know Jesus should show evidence of that knowledge in his life. Now, John's test here is a very specific one. and We have to be careful. And this is where I think some people go off a little and get this a little wrong. 
His test is not that we lead perfect lives, because self-evidently we don't. We can't, not in this body, not with the sin that we have within us. It's not within our capacity as yet to do away entirely with sin. Or even, necessarily, that we would have a particularly mature walk as Christians, though that is our call, though that is our hope, and that is the thing we are endeavoring to work toward. Nonetheless, as I like to say it, the day after I became a believer, I looked an awful lot like I did the day before. There's a reality to the progression of our walk, and we all know that. So no one can stand by and say the test for whether you're a Christian or not is how perfectly you walk according to Jesus' commandments. If that were actually what he was saying, we'd all fail that test, at least sooner or later. No, that's not his point. The central truth is actually found in verse 6 of 1 John 2. He says, the one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner. Ought is the key word. He ought to. Ought means should. We should expect it in ourselves and in others. Just as God is now calling Isaac to do so. We ought to do it. Now, the word ought there gives some room for the possibility that now and again a few Christians might do otherwise. Though they ought, they might not. The flesh is powerful. How many of us would deny that truth? The flesh is powerful. It gets all of us sooner or later, once in a while. And it traps some Christians in a life of disobedience. They aren't willing to acknowledge the power of sin. They aren't willing to acknowledge the truth of the gospel. So for them, though all of us fail some, some of us fail a lot. But there are some who, by their consistent failure, are showing themselves not to be who they say they are. If people claim to know him, but there's no evidence whatsoever that they're trying to walk with him, just be warned. When you see someone make a claim that they don't back up by their lifestyle, don't look to them for teaching. Don't look to them for your guidance and leadership in, in your church. Don't make them your model. Stay away from them. Either they're a sinful, carnal believer which is nothing you want to be a part of. Or they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're an unbeliever pretending to be a believer. You don't want anything to do with that either. Now, he's not saying we walk up to those people and put a sign on their back, unbeliever, because we may be wrong. They may be one of those really immature Christians. They may be one of those people who ought, but don't. What John is saying, though, in the context of 1 John is stay away from them. But the bigger question of 1 John is not what we make of other people. The biggest issue of 1 John is what do we make of ourselves? We ought to walk according to what the Scripture says, if it is the case that we follow the Master whose word it is. Ought means showing progression over the years of our walk with the Lord. Every year, a little better than the year before. We know a little more. We feel a little more conviction over our sin. We feel a little greater pull to doing what we're called to do. We associate more and more with the right kinds of people who help us model those behaviors. More and more, we put aside the unhealthy relationships that are causing us to fall back into sinful ways. More and more, we look and act and think Christ-like. Now, none of that progression is in our own power. The Spirit is the one who does all of that work. What Scripture calls us to do is hear and keep and guard 
take those positive steps to put ourselves in a position where the Lord can speak to us, we will hear and we will yield. So what effect did this appearance have on Isaac and particularly this charge to him to be like his father? Well, verse 6. It's one of the shortest verses in the chapter, but it says a lot. Isaac remained in Gerar. Whatever thoughts he might have been entertaining about running down to Egypt, and I have to believe it must have been in the back of his mind. Otherwise, why would God have come to him and said, don't go to Egypt? He was thinking about it. And when he hears this word from God, stay in the land, what does he do? He stays in the land. Is there any more powerful piece of evidence available for us to tell us this is a man who heard from God and followed? Remember, it's a famine. There's no prospect of food. There's no reason for him to expect, in earthly terms, that staying in the land was going to be a good thing. He had every reason to assume the opposite. But what he had on the other side was God saying, if you stay here, I will take care of you. He stayed because the Lord directed him. So the first thing Moses wants us to know about this man Isaac, in this one chapter, the only place we have, the first thing is that here is a man who obeyed God's word. So when you think Isaac... Think obedience. Think obedience. And perhaps even more so than Abraham. Certainly more so than Jacob. And just wait till you get to Jacob. He's a field day in in issues of obedience. But Isaac here, we're seeing, is content to hear the word of the Lord and do it. In fact, he's the only patriarch who never leaves the land, ever. He is born, lives, and dies within the borders of the land. So if Abraham is the father of faith, I think it's fair to say that Isaac then was the father of obedience. But it doesn't end there. So moving forward, verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, My wife. Thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, now you know why I say it's back to the future. He's living in a foreign land. We know that already. The whole thing is foreign. The whole land from end to end is is foreign, which is ironic, right? Because it's his land in inheritance. But as it stands right now, it's not his. And God's not making any effort to tell the world it's his. This is almost a secret between God and Isaac. One day this will be yours. Meanwhile, though, it's owned by the forerunners of the Philistines. And Isaac's fear of the Philistines is not unfounded. Historically, they were a particularly brutal people and a pagan people. They were a sea people historically that migrated from Crete, primarily in the 12th century B.C. But some may have appeared even earlier, like in this day of of Isaac's time, The forerunners of the Philistines were universally hated people among those who dwelled in this region. In fact, the Egyptians thought of them as pirates and would just kill them on sight if they saw them on the waters. Others from their homeland of Crete 
were so despised that they were called Cretans, which is a demeaning term that came to mean imbecile or crude, unsophisticated. That's how the world looked at these people. And Isaac is living among them, totally vulnerable to them. He has very few defenses. So he pulls a page from Dad's playbook. When in a dangerous territory, see page six. Sister is wife. Oh, this is good. So he calls Rebecca his sister. Now, the men from the region were told they begin to inquire about Rebecca because she's so beautiful. There's only one reason you inquire about a woman in that day. It's interest in marrying her, taking her into your into your harem. So Isaac should have done this. He should have simply told them, this is my wife, hands off, which culturally should have been enough. But he fears because he's vulnerable and he's weak and he's worried that they'll do what the Egyptians are known to do, which is they will kill the husband to make the wife available. So while they don't like adultery, they have no problem with murder. And that's what's bothering him. Of course, that means Isaac has no problem with lying. So Isaac, once again, puts his wife at great risk in order to save his own neck, because that's the outcome of this. Remember? If you tell the world, this is my sister, what you're saying is she's available, potentially. So it may keep him from dying, but what does that do with the wife? At least this time, there's no indication that Rebecca was asked to lie with him like Sarah had been asked by her husband. Now, interestingly, Isaac's opportunity to make this claim, to even turn to this page of Dad's playbook, it's dependent on being childless. If they had had a child... There's no way he could walk around saying, this is my sister. So these events must have happened before chapter 25, before Jacob and Esau's birth. This is a moment in the life of Isaac that was pulled out and emphasized to make a point, but it's chronologically an earlier moment. So where before Abraham and Sarah were literally half-siblings, you could do the same here, by the way. Isaac and Rebecca, they're cousins. But that doesn't change the fact that he's married to her, right? That's the same problem we had with Abraham. So like his father before him, Isaac makes up this lie. And in the process, he displays a belief that the ends justify the means, does he not? We said when we looked at it last time that any form of deception reflects a lack of trust in the Lord. That's what a lie is. Ultimately, a lie is a lack of trust in the Lord. So whatever situation I'm in, whatever I have done, whatever I'm covering up, whatever I'm trying to avoid, whatever protection I'm trying to create, whatever those things are, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm saying my lie is a more powerful source for me to gain my need or to do what I want than God is if I tell the truth. When we go against the Lord's commandments to suit our own purposes, we declare by those actions we don't have trust in the Lord. It's inevitable. If it was the case that telling the truth causes the Philistines to murder Isaac and God allows it to happen, so be it. What's more important to a Christian, preserving your physical earthly life or remaining true to the Lord so that on the day of our resurrection, we have a good testimony and a good witness before our judge? If you're thinking about the here and now to the exclusion of that other moment, When you get there, you'll wish you had made a different bargain. So when Isaac lied, it reflected a lack of trust. When Isaac's deception is discovered, it leads to this interesting little scene. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looks out a window and he sees Isaac, it says, caressing Rebekah. 
Now, this Abimelech, by the way, is probably the son of the previous one because the term Abimelech is just a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's not a name. So the king of the Philistines was always called Abimelech. This is perhaps Abimelech Jr. or Abimelech II, or we don't know. It could have been the same guy, by the way, because this is less than 100 years since the previous moment. And men were living into the 175th year in these days. So it's not out of the realm of possibility it's the same guy, but we don't know either way. Anyway, he looks out his window. It says here he sees caressing. Now, the word for caressing in Hebrew is actually an interesting word. It's the word laugh. It's the word laugh, laughing. It's the same root from which we had Isaac. When you go look at Isaac's name, it means to laugh or laughing. So literally in the Hebrew, when you read this, it says something like he saw Isaac Isaacing with Rebekah. But it's a euphemism, right? The context tells us what's really going on. Whatever it was, Isaac was engaged in a behavior with Rebecca that brothers don't normally do with their sisters, but is actually typical for husbands and wives, whatever that was. Make up your own. Just don't say it out loud. And it became apparent, obviously apparent to this guy as he's looking out the window, they're not brother and sister. They're husband and wife. I find it an interesting commentary on culture today. That in that day, something that simple could definitively tell you they were husband and wife. Unfortunately, today, I might see that behavior and wonder what kind of relationship they have. In that day, at least in the culture of the time, they had enough respect for the sanctity of marriage to make sure that that was a behavior that was only going to happen between husband and wife. Abimelech knew by what he saw that this visitor, this man who had been there now for a while, was lying. It's so ironic, given how we just saw Isaac's behavior a moment earlier, causing a commendation in the sense that he heard God's word and he kept it. And he's seen as a man of obedience. He stayed in the land. But now, look at his behavior working against him. In the first case, what he did showed you what he believed. Now, what he does is also revealing the truth of who he is. But it's contrary to what he said. Hence the lie. Once again, the principle of 1 John 2 is proven true. What we do tells people more about our hearts than what we say. So what led Abimelech to discover this truth concerning Isaac? Well, he looked out the window. But that begs the question, what caused him to look out the window? What caused these circumstances to line up just so perfectly so that the moment he looks out the window, his gaze meets Isaac and Rebekah just in the moment when Isaac is caressing Rebekah? You know, we could just chalk that up to coincidence, right? But wait a minute. There's no such thing as coincidence, right? Coincidence implies there's something outside of God's control. As Christians, we know everything is in God's control. Wouldn't we credit God with this discovery? Wouldn't that be the way we'd interpret the text? God caused this moment so that Abimelech would learn something that God wanted Abimelech to learn. Back when Abraham went into Egypt and made this same lie about Sarah, how did that get revealed? Do you remember that story? God brought plagues on Egypt, which then, through some mechanism that's not recorded in Scripture, it allowed Pharaoh to understand what he had done wrong with Sarah. And that's when he went to Abraham and said, what have you done to me? And then the second time Abraham did this, you remember he did it twice? He did it against Abimelech also in the earlier instance. And in that time, how did God bring the truth to light? 
Abimelech got that dream. The dream that said, you're in big trouble, buddy. You either restore her or it's history for you and your people. So if God went out of his way with Pharaoh, and then he went out of his way with Abimelech earlier to communicate, this is what's really going on. How are we to conclude anything else except in this instance now, it's also God. He just chose to do it in a little more natural way than he's done it in the previous two ways. There's a lesson in that, by the way. God is capable of revealing our sins in countless ways. And we should expect him to do it sooner or later. And why not? The fastest road to conviction, repentance, and righteousness is to see your sin put on display. I often wonder if men in ministry who have reached a point of prominence and then fallen have gone through that experience precisely because it was the fastest road to healing them if healing was going to happen. It does a lot of harm in the process, but that's the nature of sin. Exposing our sin is the first step to ending it in our lives. So, folks, if we have tendencies in our life to repeat sins in a consistent way and and just to hope that no one will ever know and it will never make any difference and it's not hurting anyone or whatever justifications we have. Remember this story. Don't expect it to remain hidden forever. And even if even if God may tarry in this life in keeping your secrets with you, it won't go forever that way. Because scripture says in Luke eight seventeen, Jesus said, for nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. There's a moment in which God brings these things to light for our own conviction and so that others would know the truth as well. So let's wrap up. As with Pharaoh and with the earlier Abimelech, this king is livid at the discovery of the deception. Once again, here's a foreigner who stepped into his land, lied about his wife, put everybody at risk. And the king now is upset at that deception. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a day and in a culture where people worried this much about violating marriage? Isn't it interesting how much this man is upset over the prospect that someone could step in and violate marriage? Well, in this day, this was a serious problem. Now, remember, Isaac's a wealthy man. And so his wealth posed a threat to Abimelech. So Abimelech has his own reasons to avoid a conflict here. And he admonishes Isaac, declaring, you did something wrong. But now to show you that we were trustworthy in the first place, I'm going to make a declaration. No one is to touch this woman or you so that you can see that your lie was unnecessary and it will be to your own shame. That's his reason for this statement. His declaration is both an assurance and a conviction. And so we learn the second fact for the day concerning Isaac. Moses teaches us that, yes, Isaac was an obedient man who heard from God, but Isaac was not sinless. No more so than dad. And yet, as we'll see next week, God continues to bless and protect Isaac despite his sin, because his promises are not conditional on Isaac's behavior. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for in your word this morning, Father, a reminder of how important our own lives are and how we represent what we believe. Thank you for the reminder in the life of Isaac that even a man who is credited with so much obedience and who walked so closely for so long, still, Father, when he failed, you were there. We thank you for that faithfulness in our life as well. May we, Father, be better stewards of the faith you've given us, ones who keep and guard the truth of your commandments in Scripture, that we are reflection, Father, of that truth in our choices. And let us be a small church that grows to meet the needs of those who are here and by your will, Father, reaches others. Let the word go out from here to do that. 
And take us away from your Father and let us enjoy our day together with our families and bring us back safely next week. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.